Hello everyone and welcome to episode number 7. Folks, we are now less than one month away from the biggest event of the year in the Libertarian calendar, that is the annual Libertarian Party Conference being held in Manchester on Saturday, October the 19th. If you still haven't got your tickets yet, then what are you doing? Pull your finger out. But if you haven't got them, then don't panic. You can still book them at www.libertarianparty.co.uk. Just go there, follow the link to the Eventbrite page, uh, book your tickets. Then on the checkout page, use the discount code Libertarian123. That's Libertarian123. All one word with a capital L and the numbers 1, 2 and 3 on the end. And you'll get a massive 25% saving on those ticket prices. So get on it and I look forward to seeing you in Manchester on October the 19th. Okay, folks, my very special guest today is a wonderful musician and composer, Matthew Sear. The reason he's here is to talk about a fantastic charity that first came to my attention through Matthew, and it is one that I fully endorse and think is a fantastic idea. It's a bit different from the usual charities, but still a very worthy cause, and I really wanted to talk about it at some point on the show. So here it is today. But before we get to the main crux of it, what would be the Gareth Seawood show without the libertarian perspective on things, eh? Uh, now, now, those of you who aren't familiar with libertarianism or true libertarianism, you've probably heard all the nonsense and the complete bullmud about how cold-hearted and selfish and libertarians are and blah, 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 right? But of course, that's what much of the opposing propagandists put out there to try and smear and disparage the name of libertarianism because, quite frankly, they fear what we do offer, what we do suggest. And it's because, and it's because it threatens their very existence. You see, every single source of such crapola is either a supporter or affiliated in some way or even a full-blown member of some sort of political party or state bureaucracy, and their purpose is to increase the reach of their particular favourite flavour of statism. And by increasing their reach, I mean their power, their control and influence. They want the state to grow even further. Of course, then the statists are absolute masters of emotional manipulation, and they like to tug at the hearts of the masses to try and convince them that the state is a force for the positive good, despite indisputable empirical evidence showing the absolute dismal contrary in all aspects, both economically and socially. And they like to convince you that any other alternative options that could work far better, far more effectively, or far more efficiently and far more cost-effective can't really be viable and anyone advocating any other system than their own is selfish and evil and blah 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 right and of course if you're too lazy to look beyond the garbage you're fed and you just accept this without doing your own research beyond a two-minute google search and you choose to remain completely ignorant of indisputable historical fact that supports a libertarian perspective 
then that's your prerogative. And many of those who do that, or don't do that, actually think themselves in some way as being rebels, when in fact they're actual full-on state conformists. Right? Libertarians are not anti-poor or anti-charitable at all. And if you believe such crap, then you're an idiot. You're a moron. Simple as. Right? We simply believe there are far more efficient and effective ways and more moral of achieving things without the state. I mean, where is the morality and the virtue in threatening someone with violence to hand over their money and override whatever they want in order to get what you want? Where's the morality in that? Because that is exactly what government force and coercion is. And if you support that system, you know, the extortion of someone else using the force of government to expropriate their money from them to pay for what you want, then you're a fascist. Straight and simple. You know, that word gets banded around a lot very carelessly today by many who I suspect don't truly seem to understand or know what it means. But what I've described is exactly what a fascist is. The forced oppression of another's will to gain for your own wants. So if you are truly altruistic and you want to and want to help others who may um, and I believe most people are. Most people are essentially good-hearted. I believe, you know, you know, if you truly want to help others who may not be as fortunate as yourself for one reason or another, then what's stopping you? What's stopping you from helping those people for yourself? Is it because instead of actually going out and helping people, it's enough that the government just takes your money and you think that's all the involvement you need? That's enough to make you feel better about helping, in inverted commas, helping others could it be without the government force you may not bother to help or contribute to charitable causes at all so you just make the assumption that others won't as well if they're not forced to either how virtuous <laughs> and, and and why does the charitable cause that is most important to you why does everyone else have to be forced to pay for it i mean if i came up to you and held you up at gunpoint i had a gun at your head and said, I have a really great charity and it's really important to me that you fund it. And if you don't, I'll kidnap you, take you away and lock you up in a cell somewhere. Is, is that right? Is that moral? Because that's exactly what the state does. So how does it become suddenly acceptable then? A great question I recall Tom Woods posing a while ago aimed at the sheer hypocrisy of it all. Um, you know, we constantly hear about the 1% and how they should be forced to redistribute their wealth. Well, the fact is, in the global economy, if you're earning an average wage here in the Western world, then you are in the global 1%. So when are you going to start writing those checks for all those people in Zimbabwe? You know, what's the consistent moral principle that the Western 1% should be expropriated, but you, but you are not? On what moral ground should one group be forced and not another? You know, you can't pick and choose the moral principle based on an arbitrary geographical border. You're either for wealth distribution to help the poor, or you aren't. So when are you sending your cash over to Zimbabwe? Anyway, besides the moral stance of using force and coercion, it's also a question of effectiveness and efficiency. The fact is, every single major government program is highly wasteful, 
highly costly and usually has downside consequences that outweigh the positives. And the truth, the truth of it is, is the government's incentive to fail. Because every time, the more often it fails, the more money it gets. Its inefficiency is rewarded. Is exactly the opposite of the private sector, where failure basically means the death of that organisation. So therefore, it has incentive to be as efficient and as cost-effective as possible with the absolute minimum of waste. You know, we see government programmes boasting how many people it has, you know, on its roll call, where good private charities prefer to say how many people it has managed to get off their role by helping them to get to the point where they no longer need or be dependent on them. You know, a failed and dismally poor-performing government programme can just go on and on forever, whereas an ineffective charity will have a more difficult time sustaining itself and obtaining funds uh, to be able to continue. The charity is held more accountable to its donors, unlike the state, that is never held to account to the taxpayers. Charitable organisations are just a better source of aid than the state, for much the same reason that decisions in communities are better made locally rather than central governance. They tend to be nearer to the cause firsthand, more hands-on, so to speak, working directly with the people it wants to help. It knows better what their needs are and know what, what would be most effective in meeting those needs. They can be more flexible in how they operate towards reaching solutions to the problems. And if we look at history, we can see at all points when there was smaller government and minimal state involvement in our lives that private charities flourished. For one example, to illustrate this, I'll quote directly from part um, of a Milton Friedman lecture. If you're familiar with it, back in the 70s, Friedman did a series of lectures that were aired as part of the Free to, Free to Choose series. I, I got most of them on video, but they're all well worth checking out on YouTube. Some of them uh, really interesting. But the one I want to reference was when Friedman was talking about the correlation between, um, or rather when free market capitalism saw one of the greatest explosions in philanthropy and the rise of private charitable organisations in history. Speaking of America in the 19th century, Friedman said, the period of unrestrained, rugged individualism was a period when the modern type of non-profit community hospital was first established and developed. It was the period of the Carnegie libraries and their spread through the philanthropy of Andrew Carnegie. It was the period when so many colleges were founded throughout the country. It was the period of the founding of the Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals and the spread of foreign missions. There was no income tax no deductibility of contributions, so what people spent on charity came out of their pocket and not, as now, largely out of taxes they would otherwise pay. And yet, in every aspect of private charitable activity, it was a boom period. So anyway, let's get to my guest today. <laughs> At last, I hear you say. Uh, well, he's here to talk a bit about a great charity called Music in Hospitals and Care. If, like me, you love live music but are incapacitated in some way or the other, receiving some sort of medical treatment or care in a hospital or some other type of healthcare institution, then Music in Hospitals and Care is a charity that brings the live music to you. 
they, they have a website, which is www.mihc.org.uk. And on that website, um, I'll just read a bit for a few now. It says, since 1948, music in hospitals and care has been breaking down the barriers which prevent people, regardless of their health or well-being, from access- accessing the benefits of live music. Our sessions are designed to humanise clinical settings, reach and connect people, encourage communication and meaningful interactions, and evoke emotions and memories when it matters most. So I'm delighted to have here today to tell us a bit more about it and some of the work he does for the organisation, Matthew Sear. Hi Matthew, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm good Gareth, thanks very much. Thank you for having me here. It's my pleasure. Right now, now you've joined me today to discuss something that I think is just awesome and something that I know uh, that you're involved with and that's a private charity called Music in Hospitals and Care. Can you tell us about the charity, what kind of work it does and how it goes about it? Okay, um, I'll go from the just the artistic um, and care end. I mean, there's a behind the scenes, there's a I mean, there's a load of great people. They do obviously lots of the fundraising and the uh, publicity. But from this end, uh, we're basically um, there's a group of musicians, several hundred of us around the UK. And we're sent um, to basically just various hospitals. Um, they could be care homes, hospitals, they could be units, um, they could be absolutely anything. That, some of them um, are private, some of them are NHS, some of them are a bit of both. Um, they're children, adults, absolutely every conceivable sort of situation. And with the variety of that is also a variety of musicians. Um, there's literally every genre from uh, classical to punk to rock to jazz to folk, absolutely everything. And what they try and do is they pair up, like if they've got a place, um, just hypothetically with children, for example, they might have people that have already played to children who play sort of maybe sort of younger um, music the children like. Um, if it's an old people's care home who like jazz standards, they might get a, a jazz duo voice and piano. So it really does cater for everything. Um, I do something, um, I'm on a, it was initially a kind of pilot type scheme. I'm one of a, a very small group of the several hundred musicians who play in um, kind of ICUs and I've been sent to like uh, kind of heavy, well not heavy duty, I don't, I don't mean like that, but I suppose places where you sort of more seriously ill people, so oncology units, um, children's hospitals where they're very ill. Um, and for the most part, I, um, I mean, it's been usually very, very, obviously there's some poignant moments, but on the whole, it's very, very positive, uh, very positive experience. Excellent songs, absolutely brilliant. How far reaching is the charity, as in what kind of geographical area does it cover? Well, it, it literally covers the whole of the UK, so all the uh, countries of the UK, but um, that's something I've thought of. I've wondered, I mean, I haven't actually investigated if it's, I mean, it's still, I mean, it's obviously founded after the war, but I suppose it's still quite new in in many terms. It'd be, I wonder if they'd, uh, that's another topic for libertarian. Should it be global? Should it be a globalization of music and hospitals? But maybe um, one day, that's just a thought, really. The idea of it partnering up with uh, any other international ones, or even actually having that'd be another thought. The idea of um, if there's any British hospitals abroad, actually having scope to actually send musicians, British musicians, to there. So that that's just kind of thinking out loud. But that's a very interesting 
a very interesting question and idea to ponder, definitely. Yeah, that is quite um, an interesting idea about doing it abroad. I mean, we have uh, the musicians sort of, and entertainers who go and entertain in sort of the military camps, don't they? So it's a very interesting sort of comparison. Yeah, it's very. I suppose it's very similar, isn't it? Yeah. So, how how did you personally become involved with music in hospitals and care? I mean, how did you find out about it, and how did you become recruited? Shall we say? Well, my mum had uh, cancer. That was in. She was diagnosed in 2013, and she passed late December 15. Um, around that time, I think you get periods of life like that, where a kind of a pocket of time where my half-brother also died within about three-month period of that. And then it was a kind of a period of death, basically. A, a year and a half, our friend Barbara died. So it's a kind of a pocket of time where, I mean, I've always, not to get too sidetracked from the original question, but I thought... Um, you know, I'm very interested in lots of kind of, uh, I suppose you could call it theology and sort of metaphysical things and philosophy and pondering sort of big questions. So it's not it's not like I hadn't thought about death, but it was something it was it was something to have it sort of really in a reality terms actually faced directly with. So in context of that, as a kind of uh, yeah to contextualise that in the answer, I suppose when my mum was very ill and she was in hospital. Um, we had a very, very close of each other and we had a kind of agreement in the end because we both knew that hospital visits for a long, long time could be very boring for both people really because I think the patient uh, doesn't want to hurt the person's feelings who's come and also is obviously pleased to see them. The person visiting does get bored after a while but at the same time you've got your emotional side, you don't want to... So there's this kind of thing going on. So what I did, I, I've got a guitar, a Yamaha, it's called a silent guitar and it's one of those ones where it's kind of, it look, it's just an outline of a guitar body of a neck. And it doesn't, if you play it out loud without anything, it, you, it, you can hardly, it's like playing electric guitar without an amp plugged in, so you can hardly hear it. But you stick a set of headphones in it, to the person who's got the headphones on, it actually sounds like you're playing classical guitar in a, a big concert hall. It's got a lovely reverb on it. My mum loved music, so I began taking my guitar all the time there. And I had the agreement with her. She loved listening to it. Um, and I said to her, well, I like practicing a lot, if you don't mind why don't you just put the headphones on and as we're going to be here and you're going to be in and out of consciousness, I'll just practice. And that's how we spent many, many hours together in the hospital. Um, I got to know a few of the people around the beds um, who actually could just about make out the sounds and liked it. And um, I think I played to a couple of them. And it occurred to me amongst all the grief, not grief was that came afterwards, but it occurred to me how music in such a kind of, a hospital can, is very much like a school or a prison in terms of you're institutionalised. And I think you start seeing things in this very uh, insular kind of way. And I thought, wow, music really is, it's a kind of little friendly reminder that life is actually existing outside. I think it can take you away in so many ways. It lifts you out of the situation. So when my mum eventually passed away, um, a few weeks afterwards, I began Googling. I just thought off the top of my head, I just wrote sentences into google you know charities that perform in hospitals eventually found music in hospitals i wrote um a completely uncensored as i usually do even for this uh, i just uh, i haven't got any notes or anything so i i just wrote a very off the top of my head um but honest letter to the lady claire her name was claire owen explained how upset i was but how um i was a musician and i just read about the charity what do i do and within about three or four months i was auditioned and got on board and that was yeah that's about four years ago and i reckon there's an estimate i've i probably do maybe between 
I wouldn't like to say exactly, but I'd say between twenty and forty performances a year, something something around around that amount. Well, that's that's incredible. I mean, I couldn't imagine my life without music. I mean, I've loved music since I can remember, and um, I can only imagine sort of being in a situation where I don't have access to the music, as you said, in such things like hospitals and things. And and now there's such a beautiful story, if you don't mind me saying, because... No, not at all, thank you. Um, through, like, obviously the times which were difficult and tough, you know, with your mother and so forth, grew this wonderful thing. I know it sounds like a cliched thing to say, but no, that that is amazing. And um, well, I, I must congratulate you on that, if that's the right sort of uh, term to use, because quite often such dark or challenging or trying periods of our lives can have not such a positive effect and i think what you've done you've taken something and you've grown and expanded on it and um, i think it's a wonderful thing well thank you appreciate that thank you how do you personally find the whole experience performing for the charity do you have any particular moment or memory that you've experienced through doing it which particularly stands out okay um what i'll do i'll change the stories to so it's they're not identical the patients but there was one um and i'll change maybe the sex as well <laughs> of the person but there was a lady uh, once who was involved in a very very serious road accident uh, she was far away from home and that was very difficult because um she wanted me to play to her but at the same time she was still i mean she was still in severe shock for the accident and also she um as i was playing told me that her mother the culture she was from, the mothers are very wor- real warriors, very sort of um, matriarchal kind of culture. And she basically just said that she couldn't tell if her mother knew how be injured she was. It would, and the fact she couldn't get there straight away, it would take several hours on the aeroplane. It was, she said it, it, was, she, it distressed her, the thought of her mother being so upset. So that was difficult. And she, she asked me to make phone calls for her and stuff. And, and of course, you can't do that. It's, it's, well, it's completely beyond... Um, so I just followed pro- the protocol for that is you go back to music and hospitals, you explain it, and they liaise with the hospital about the, and it and it did get resolved this issue. But I think that was a kind of a, there's things like that occasionally that jolt you. But but there's lots. It's very unusual. It's, it's like in um, I think it's like day to day life. Sometimes what moves you, it can be it, and like a, a funny analogy. Uh, this is a really old analogy. It's like a horror film. Sometimes you can watch the most awful horror film. And it's funny or scare or doesn't even scare you. Another time you watch an episode of Doctor Who or The Incredible Hulk or something that's not scary. And it really it really gets to you. And it's a so music in hospitals. I've played in children's cancer wards where I spoke to some children that I've been told and haven't got long left. And it's a very poignant and kind of joyous thing. And I've never thought about it. And then there's other things. It's very strange what uh what kind of uh what gets you if you know what I mean it's very very strange yeah and as a musician I mean it's also difficult sometimes because when you're playing the music or performing the music and you get a bit emotional it can be difficult to sort of stay focused on what you're playing and not let the emotions take over you if if that makes sense which sounds like quite a a paradox because a good musical piece should be stirring emotion you know this is the funny thing and I think this is um this is the one odd thing where um and I apologise, I don't want it at all to sound lack of humility, but this is why I think I'm good at playing for music in hospitals. I feel it's very difficult to explain to someone. I'm a very, um, I put all my heart into playing music. While I'm at the hospital, I feel lots of empathy towards who I, who I meet and who I perform to. But once I'm on the train back, it completely leaves my head. I'm, uh, I'm thinking about what I'm watching on Netflix, dinner for later. 
it's very and I think that's actually why I think I'm good at playing the very the ICUs and the oncology kind of units because because of that I, it's and it's difficult to describe because I've, I've said to some people about it and I've regretted it because they've they've misinterpreted it as cold like aloof or the ability but it's I can't explain it's more like a living in the moment I'd describe it as so while you're there in the moment you're very present but when you're not there it's the kind of ability not to really dwell on it too much if you see what I mean I, I think that explains it kind of yeah you have to have some level of disconnect you know I mean not to sound cold or I don't mean it to be cold but you you, you can't become too wrapped up in the moment can you because otherwise it's going to become overwhelming as such yeah absolutely it's it's there's very much that side of it and also you um to be honest anyway a lot of the time you're not you don't know i mean there's a guy who often shows me around um he's kind of advises which patients you know he finds out which ones like music and stuff and he he's got a policy himself which i quite admire he says his actual job on the ward he's not a nurse um he's a, a kind of assistant and he says his job he says he doesn't actually find out exactly what the condition is of anyone um, or what they've got or anything like that. And he said he does that, he says, because he doesn't want, he said if he knows, like, for example, someone only has two months left to live, for example, he doesn't want his face to read, them to read of, of worry in him. Or uh, he says the way he doesn't know, he said he just goes around and he's he's very happy, he loves his job, and he's a kind of a, a friendly sort of helpful face for them. And I think I kind of, I, I get that. I really get that kind of way of uh, perceiving things, definitely. Yeah, I mean, at the risk of sounding a bit sort of uh, light-hearted about it, I mean, you don't want to find out someone has only two months to live and then, you know, start playing things like Staying Alive by the Bee Gees, <laughs> do you? you know? oh, well, tell you, it's so funny, actually, because I, I love dark humour. I really, I really do. There's, there's, um, there are occasionally really funny things, like I had someone had to shadow me. He was a, harp, a harpist. I said to him, I said, oh, that's great, isn't it? I said, you know, we're going to... We're going to go around to the other ward where they're unconscious. They said they're going to come out of a coma and suddenly you're playing the harp. They're going to think they've crossed over to the other side. There's, <laughs> there's lots of really funny. And there's also sometimes, without any irony, sometimes people do actually ask for, like, they, you say, oh, is there any pieces you'd like to hear? Some man said, oh, do you know Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven? I said, yep. And I just, you just play it completely um, friendly, dead pat, you know, no. Inside I thought, oh, this is like the most worst song I can think of. <laughs> so you have to have, a, I think, a sense of humour differently with, uh, you have to see the funny side. Absolutely. Uh, speaking about that, when you said the guy requested Led Zeppelin, yeah, um, you also touched on earlier about the various different genres and styles that get performed and played. How how is that decided in advance? Do the performers generally just play what they decide, or do they do specific requests? And and how how does it work? Very good question. In what's different if if it's a, if it's like a home, say for example, and um, there's like um, a care home for an old, elderly people. Generally, that's that's kind of they match it up, so it's kind of it's much more premeditated. But something like an ICU, it's impossible because it, you've just got a random collection of people of all different ages and everything. Yeah, yeah so the, there is a kind of but on an ICU, yeah, it's very you have to be. Uh, I think you have your own pieces. You're ready. They know you like with me. They know my official title. It says I play classical guitar and I include some uh, jazz standards as well. But within that, I sort of. Um, I try and you put the feelers out a lot. Like so, for example, I've got classical guitar versions of film music, TV stuff like Game of Thrones, The Godfather theme, um, Star Wars, loads of kind of things. And you kind of trial and error. Um, there's also because I teach guitar, I've got a lot of. There's a lot of things I know from older kind of stuff like rock and roll right through to Ed Sheeran type. 
um, things. And on top of that, there's the, I think you have to sort of be prepared to improvise. So it can sometimes be a very nice conversational thing. Someone asks you, do you know something? You don't, you get your phone out, you can quickly look it up on Apple Music and you say to them, basically, you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to try and really my, try my best to kind of work out a version for you. And even if it goes wrong a bit, it actually ends up as a kind of a bonding. You've bonded and it's a topic of conversation. You start talking yeah. about the group. So there's there are, it's not always just a performance in terms of you play and go. Often it is kind of a... And also sometimes people want to talk, if they're real into music, like it was a young lady the other week. Um, she was in the ICU. She's only in her 20s. Lovely young lady. And she... Um, had complications with a pregnancy and she was an absolute she was music mad she knew everything from I, th- I ended up saying to her, what's your record collection like and she had vinyl cds so that turned into a kind of in the end the doctor came around and said like apologize so that we really have to do something sort of you know private and with her and she said oh can you come back and we can and when i came back at the end we care so sometimes it's sometimes it's not so much necessarily playing it's sometimes music talk as well so it's kind of all part it comes under the same umbrella of it if you like awesome i mean it seems it seems to me like such a productive way to help make people's lives a little bit richer you know where where both sides benefit you know i don't mean necessarily mean industrially or but but more spiritually or on an emotional level like sick people or people who are bed bound for whatever reason and they may not be able to get out to enjoy live music or get the opportunity. Um, they get the music that comes to them, and you know, and the artist obviously enjoys performing because otherwise they wouldn't be musicians. Of course, they get That's that rewarding perfect. feeling then of emotional gratification, knowing that you're doing good for somebody else. So, so to me, it's a win-win. So, for any musicians listening to this who may hear this and think, "I'd like to get involved in in that." How, how would they go about it and what do you do you have any advice you could give them um well how to go about it i mean look on there's a music and hospitals there's different uh, there's a main page that's the Walton on thames one so search on facebook for music and hospitals and care and you'll find that quite easily or on twitter as well um they have they do once you join their pages they do every now and again make calls out for a part of the uk they'll say oh calling any musicians who live in for example, not necessarily they're looking for there now, but they might say in the Midlands or they might say musicians in sort of Scotland who live near, I don't know, Falkirk, we're looking for people. So they do do calls out and then what happens is then you audition and then you hopefully sort of it goes well and you get your kind of a member there. It, it's sort of, um, I mean, the audition is very, it's very friendly. It's very, you just have to do the audition exactly how you would do, but you're not expected to, I mean, they you get lots of you get lots of chances to in terms of once you're in, you're not expected to be you know absolutely wonderful at it and wonderful talking to people in hospitals straight away. It's very over the course of sort of ten, twenty, thirty performances, you sort of get used to it. And a, a funny thing is, one of them, I've got friends and family who work as nurses and um, etc. But one thing I never really appreciated was I'm very sort of um, very typically. British and that so if someone says to me one o'clock yeah that means we meet at one o'clock it's kind of a I'm not this uh, it's kind of it's not loosey-goosey but in a hospital it's very um to me it reminds me of going when I go to many times I've been to Spain it's very the amount of times I've been there and I've I phoned up and said I'm going to be five minutes late my train's delayed or or I get there 10 minutes early and apologize and say I'm I'm really sorry it's never like that in a hospital things change so much for them they have to improvise all the time. They're, nothing is set in stone with, it, with illness. So 
you being there, they they're always so welcoming. It's never any nothing's a problem. Um, it's very very relaxed, and they're always very welcoming. And that's always been a real surprise to me. And also the other weird thing I think about, especially about ICUs, I thought um, before I did my first ICU, I thought it was going to be like an episode of you know watching Casualty or Hobby. I thought it'd be like sort of people running around and drama. They're the most chilled out for the most part. It's very very chilled out places. They're very calm and very friendly. There's no anxiety or fear in the atmosphere. It's actually very very positive feelings. So that, that that's actually been a massive. Uh, that was quite a shock, actually, in a good way. A nice shock, yeah. Yeah, until then the musician turns up and starts playing some Slayer or Megadeth. <laughs> what's, what's been the strange... Have you had any strange musical requests? Anything that's a little bit out of the ordinary? There has been a few rock... I mean, um, when I've been playing, you know, sort of like, say, some Latin American-type classical guitar composers, someone said, well, like, could I play um, Voodoo Child, Jimi Hendrix? So it's I, I did a version of that... Um, Again, I kind of put together one round, based it around a sort of open E blues. Nothing really, really extreme, though. And there's some funny, um, there was a, a hospital I played at a couple of years ago where there was an old lady, they had an actual concert room, and there was an old lady there in her late 90s who used to be an opera singer. And she was also, I think, had sort of dementia. And she liked to sing along to some of the pieces I was playing. They were, they were arrangements from the operatic pieces. But because they're arrangements for guitar... It doesn't necessarily mean that it follows exactly the same way as the actual recording. And she got really cross at the end. She she sang along to a lot of it in her opera, in her you know, in her trained singing voice, and got very cross at the end and said, uh, "And you know, you're not meant to change there. I was ready to come in at that bar, and you." <laughs> that stuff's very. Um, I mean, that's the part that that's a, there's a lot of funny things that happen that are like that that uh, I just see. And also, you get showed a lot. Sometimes you um, like someone says, to, you know, they open a little private door and they say to a a man who looks like a lovely little old man and says, oh, hi, would you like some live music? No, I wouldn't. Go away. <laughs> <laughs> so so that you, you have to, yeah, there's, there's lots of funny moments. Very much. Awesome. What about people who aren't musicians or people who can't contribute in maybe a physical sense, but somehow they might want to support the cause? Are they able to help out in any way by making um, some sort of donation or contribution in some form? Yeah, you can on the website... Um, the music hospitals and care website there's um you can donate and they also they if you contact them they do actually um there's all kinds of things like people hold raffles and you can uh, donate to them they're always i mean they're all they really the, the team behind the scenes who actually raise the money are, i think that you know they really they pull lots of rabbits out the hat in terms of uh you know they do a really great job but yeah i mean any on the website is probably the best bet for, uh, to do that Okay, tell us a bit about yourself, Matthew. Can you tell us a bit about your musical background, as in what got you started um, and when you realised you wanted to become a musician? Okay, well, I'm an only. Um, I've got a half brother and half sister. But, um, the age difference is quite. So my mum had me in her mid forties, and she had my brother and sister at eighteen and twenty, um, with a different father. So I never actually. I didn't grow up with them. So I grew up as an only child. I'm forty four now. I began learning, I collected records from the age of like a toddler. I love, I just love music all straight away. Um, I was quite, I think always quite um, enjoyed being on my own. And I, and I still am the same. I, so I've always been liked my own company. Um, at school, my academic background was very, uh, what I've come to learn is spiked learning, meaning in case anyone's listening, very, very good at some things, other things very, very poor at. No rhyme or reason, apparently, for it um, until later. But 
Uh, yeah, so music was uh, my saviour in that when when I actually discovered I was it was something I could do and was actually reasonably good at, it was like a massive weight off my shoulder. It was, it was a very much epiphany type moment. So, I, and it all started when I yeah you know, I was like twelve, thirteen, and I heard the Ozzy Osbourne Randy Rhodes tribute, which had come out uh, came out in nineteen eighty seven. Someone loaned me that a friend, and also my uncle loaned me a cassette of uh, Narciso Yeps. Uh, excuse my anyone who's listening to that who says oh yepes or whatever um my pronunciations apologies about a terribly dell boy when i put my i always say that my if i give a recital i'm 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 terrible but, um but yeah so i heard those recordings and they're both guitar obviously one electric guitar one classical but i connected them the randy Rhodes stuff obviously very neoclassical kind of playing and this very violin type sort of uh, legato sort of technique as well and i love both of them and, and as soon as i heard that i went out and bought I think it was a £25 or £20 guitar from Argos. I taught myself for a year and then began guitar and piano lessons and really just devoted, uh, very much devoted myself to straight away to hours. I mean, when I say hours a day, I really mean like I got up very early, maybe five o'clock before school, practiced until sort of seven, often took the guitar to school, practiced in lunch break, and then after school, I came back. I used to try and do my homework at school just to rush it. I didn't really care about it. I just rushed it and got it out of the way. And then when I got back at four or five o'clock, um, often I used to practice till it was just time to go to bed. So I was really very sort of uh, threw myself into it, really. And that's that's how it all began. <laughs> awesome. I'm with you on Randy Rhodes as well, by the way. I think he's awesome. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I just love I, I love all the... It's not just his kind of... I mean, obviously, there are... The, it's his wonderful sense of melody and his the the way the textures and everything but i just love how when he plays especially his live sound his guitar always sounds like if he just left it untouched for more than a second the feedback it would go it would almost blow up and go up and it's like it sounds to me always like he's trying to tame it and it makes it so exciting i think to listen to it so uh it's so the antithesis of so many other rock guitarists who shred where it's this sterile analog you know like you imagine all these effects rack units yeah 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 kind of I mean, tragic. He was his life was cut so short, really. Because I think he could have gone on to become something really big in the guitar. Well, he is really big in the guitar world. But I think you know what I mean. But um, you touched on it exactly. There is about melodic. I mean, I'm into plenty of what they call shredders, if you like. But I am very fussy about who I yeah. like to listen to shred. I mean, there's some fantastic players out there who technically a phenomenal but they, they do leave me cold emotionally you know people are, you know i'm not going to slag them off but you know ingve malmsteen amazing player but to me it, it doesn't have that kick to it you know that melody which strikes a chord in me and then we yeah. have other players such like uh, guys like steve morse joe satriani i love them you know that the melodies are so rich and multi-textured and things you know it's a personal thing it's all subjective that's what music is but i i do exactly get what you're saying about randy rhodes yeah so what is your favorite music to listen to today i mean i know you perform a lot of classical and jazz stuff but do you actually sort of listen to that or do you listen to other stuff or you know and you mentioned randy rhodes obviously what were some <laughs> of your other earlier influences and uh, sort of influences you today well, it's changed um, changed a lot. I mean, um, and I listen to a lot of different things. But my, as a musician, as a because I'm my main thing really is for years I was a guitarist and composer second. And I think one big shift has been, especially the last several years, is I compose. I think primarily now, and I see myself as that first and foremost. And I'm a guitarist second, very much. 
and my the things I write I'm very much influenced by Ligeti the Italian um, Italian Hungarian I was thinking of pizza then as, as always the Hungarian composer <laughs> um, and I, 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 love- I told you that last night that you um <laughs> We eat more pizza than a ninja turtle. <laughs> I don't. I, 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 that's an, I could do a whole podcast on pizza, but um, <laughs> that's a future yeah. episode. I'll have you on. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, he, he's um, a real hero. I like Leo Brow, the guitar composer. Um, Elliot Carter. There's lots of contemporary composers I really love, and then the other passion of classical. So it's very you know, that very kind of 20th century, 21st century classical music. Um, and then other than that, very early music, like Renaissance and Baroque music. Um, it's not that I don't like classical and romantic music in between. I think I've just done them when I first got into, like when I first discovered Randy Rose and started having lessons and the Bach cassette. And I was very traditional classical. I was very, as a teenager, very Mozart, Beethoven, and very, uh, you know, sort of modern music sounded very funny to my ears gradually that changed and the same with funny enough my ears when they got used to wanting to hear more of that my ears also started getting into jazz a lot then as well so maybe it's the same part of the the sort of brain you like you start you i always think of like when i teach people this they start off with major and minor chords eventually the ear gets used to them then you start having minor sevenths and you start having sort of other extended type chords and then eventually you start hearing dissonance and you hear chords that sound initially strange to you then you realize there's actually more to it and i think you just kind of eventually uh you kind of change you definitely evolve like that but i i mean i still love mozart's requiem i love the beethoven piano sonatas i love beethoven symphony number seven number nine obviously number five but it's not it doesn't i could live i could live without ever hearing the actual classical period ever again basically but i could but it's uh i'm very here and now person it's it's contemporary classical music that's my uh i think my real real passion definitely fantastic okay now i know you obviously teach you teach guitar and i do believe you teach piano too that's correct yeah right now's your opportunity (laughs) (laughs) to get in any plugs because i know you do many recitals and gigs and you're teaching um tell us about what sort of projects you got what fingers in what pies you got um fire away okay um well i'm on uh, spotify as matthew sear and um, apple music so i've got everything i've recorded so far is on there um at the moment i'm about to release an ep of four pieces one um is a piece for solo harpsichord the second piece is for harpsichord electric guitar and then there's two solo piano pieces so they're all original compositions and they're all actually very topical to do it today um a lot of pieces i've written since the brexit referendum have been based on what I call outrage culture. Um, and actually, now, originally, I've gone back at the moment, I'm a part-time student at Trinity Laban uh, Conservatoire. So I'm doing composition, I'm doing a, a postgraduate thing there. And originally, I was, before I went on, I'm doing an advanced diploma, which is like a, a post-master's kind of thing. Originally, I was being groomed to do the PhD with the head of composition there. Um, and the idea originally was I was going to do a, a kind of, my sort of, I was kicking about the idea basically of having all these meltdowns online and stuff and having some sort of way that I could match the rhythms of all the kind of altercations and arguments and just work out a way they could translate to music. Now, in a nutshell, not to bore the listeners, but in a nutshell, I couldn't actually. It was more of a creative project rather than, I think, an academic one. So I'm not doing a PhD now, I'm doing uh, an advanced diploma. 
But what I am still doing, though, what I'm still taking from that, what I've salvaged, is this idea of actually basing pieces of music on on actual topical things. So I've got a piece I wrote in 20, uh, I think late 2017, was it? Something like that. It's, um, it's called The System Has Crashed. Now, that's a piece of pipe organ. And I wrote that because after the Brexit result, I thought the on both sides, I thought the arguments and the venom and hostility that I read online, it was so shocking. It was actually very inspiring for a piece of music. And, 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 it, and it made me um, use sequences of notes, um, harmonies, clashes of chords to try and replicate what I saw. And these pieces that I'm going to be uploading soon, which will be on uh, these pieces for harp, chord and piano, they're called four altercations. So again, they're all based on basically that like when I pick up, I, I go on in the morning, I check out Twitter, I look at a hashtag, the latest big meltdown or hissy fit over something. And I read just a kind of, it, it's this barrage of like venomous kind of things and, and these kind of absolute lengthy arguments. And again, as soon as I, it's really funny. I, I really enjoy, I read them and I get so many musical ideas and, and, and it's given me that that's what these pieces are based on. And, and I think it's still giving me, it's something in the rhythm of the arguments, the memes, the photos that are uploaded. The, it's kind of creating a fun, interesting conversation that, um, that, yeah, I really, I'm really enjoying putting into, into music. And maybe that's a positive thing because I, I think if I didn't do that, I might be right, replying back and arguing and getting myself into all kinds of trouble. <laughs> it is, it is incredible where we draw inspiration from musically and creatively, isn't it? You know, I mean, I believe in 10, 20, 30 years time, uh, we're going to see quite a lot of sort of the culture or the arts culture sort of focused around this period in history and the anger, the emotions, as you say, the venom. Um, and there's so much, it's such a cauldron, and such a melting pot. I don't think anyone who's creative, either musically, poetically or artistically in any way, can actually avoid not being influenced or even inspired, if that's the right word, by it, you know? Yeah, no, you're right. It's, um, it's a very, actually, I mean, Often it's people say it's a horror, yeah, it's a bad period. But I think it's um, Brendan O'Neill said something recently, and um, I think it's an interview, and he said he actually regarded now as one of the most exciting periods of history in terms of Brits. Um, well, I suppose in, in global history with other events, but but particularly in our home nation, because I think we're seeing a massive shake up, a shake up of things of of, of what's happening. Yeah, there is a kind of I think whatever happens, um, for example, with Brexit, whether we leave or whether we don't, I think ultimately, I actually think this is a good, this is a good chance. We're actually seeing politicians and people for what they are. We're also learning about, I think the people thing is interesting because I've, the people thing, I've, um, again, it's it's been initially shocking, but gradually I'm very grateful for it to realise what people are really like, to realise, uh, you know, how I think how intolerant people are of people with different opinions which i find very very it's actually naturally alien to me i i find it i just find it really it's never crossed my mind if someone if someone lived next door but one and there was an election and they voted differently to me or i'm a vegetarian for example since age five if i found out you love hamburgers it doesn't it, it means nothing to me it's, that's your life your, it's your choice i do that so i find it really strange that side of things i think as well that that's uh and I'm hoping, though, that we're in a good. I'm hoping the positive side of me thinks, hopefully, we're going to reset. We're going to. We've gone so like when you think of some of the things, like in the 1970s, for example, like with the amount of safe, you know, the stuff going on with 
sort of inappropriate behaviour. We've kind of corrected things, but we've gone so far the other way. And I'm hoping things will just equal out. That's what that's kind of what I'm hoping historically will happen. But yeah, I mean, I know I know what you mean. I'm I'm a libertarian, so everyone hates me anyway. So I'm used <laughs> to it. But um, <laughs> but um, I mentioned this on one of my previous uh, episodes in discussion. I think it was with Dan Lidicott on Home Affairs. How Brexit, as you said, it the positives that have come out of it. You know, regardless of the official outcome, but the positives of the whole situation is uh, more and more people are actually waking up to our politicians and the state and we can see or they can see now that the state and the state's representatives are all about the state and the state representatives and not the people and not the citizens you know so i think that is one positive uh, that has come out of it, it it's sort of um the, the wolf the wolves in sheep's clothing have been a bit exposed yeah, yeah, definitely. What's that? I love that Churchill quote. You know, the um, he's a sheep in sheep's clothing. Yeah. Right then, Matthew. Um, if there's anything else you'd like to add, fire away. Um, just thank you very much for um putting me at ease and having me on your show, Gareth. I hope I really want the show to take off because I think it's it's very important to um we have a lot of sh- shows out there that are very left wing. Well, loads of left wing ones, but we have a kind of fewer amount of right wing ones, but there aren't many libertarian ones, and I think this is a great. I think it's a great uh, thing you're doing, and I think people uh, who are listening, libertarian, it's it's so it's just a very positive, it's a positive can-do way of doing things, and it's a trust in just I think in just ordinary people to make decisions, which I I think I, I completely trust ordinary people out there to make decisions, and I'm one of them too. So thank you for what you do as well, Gareth. Brilliant. Thank you very much. I appreciate that very much, and thank you so much for coming on. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Um, me too thank you excellent thank you so much Matthew and all the best with your future projects and hopefully we'll speak to you again soon that's great thank you Gareth okay folks that's about it for today thank you so much for listening don't forget to subscribe on Podbean or any of the other platforms this is on like Spotify and all the rest oh uh, oh, and I've also set up a Facebook page uh, just for this podcast too So just search for the Gareth Seawood Show on Facebook and give it a like and a follow. Uh, Those algorithms on Facebook are really sucky lately, aren't they? So um, if you do follow any of my pages, including my official page and the Welsh Libertarians page, please give some likes and shares to get those algorithms going uh, so more people get to see them. Thank you so much. (laughs) Anyway, don't forget to book your tickets for the Libertarian Party Conference. Manchester, October the 19th. Use my discount code, Libertarian123, to get your 25% off. And don't miss out on a great event. Right, that's it. I'm out of here. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to my guest, Matthew Sear. And I'll see you next time. The